Hey, hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Jean Priscilli, and I'm here with Anne Lepore, and we're going to be speaking about student-centered pedagogy with an emphasis on interdisciplinary teaching and inclusivity. Before we begin, can you introduce yourself? Hi, well, it's so nice to be here with you, Jean. Yes. Thank you for this. I'm Anne Lepore. I am a professor of 3D design and animation at Ramapo College of New Jersey. I make interdisciplinary work that prompts people to question hmm, existing structures and hopefully make new ones. Fabulous. And I'm Jean Priscilli, director of Seton Hall University's Walsh Gallery. We're an interdisciplinary gallery located in South Orange, New Jersey. So let's begin by having you describe your approach to teaching before the pandemic, particularly how you adapted during that period of remote teaching and what maybe you're doing in the classroom now that's different as a result or perhaps receiving new or renewed or different emphasis? Well, one funny thing is that I had a little bit of practice way ahead of time. In 2009, my doctor was convinced that I had contracted the swine flu, which was supposed to be the, that first pandemic that was maybe going to be an issue. And so I had some practice teaching remotely from home because I was in quarantine wow. in 2009. Uh, and so I taught through, I can't even remember what the software, it was pre-Zoom, pre-WebEx. And I, you know, my head appeared on a projector screen in the classroom and the students talked to my head and took turns turning the camera around so that I could see all of them and wave to them. And I controlled the computer remotely and taught that way for about a week. So not entirely <laughs> unprecedented for not, your remote teaching. Not completely. And I do teach primarily screen-based classes. So at first, there was not that much of a difference. Some of my students might not have even noticed that we had switched to remote learning. But as the pandemic went on, I think what we all noticed was how losing the community of the classroom really hurt students. The isolation, you know, hurt everybody. Mm -hmm. And not having each other to lean on socially and for the sort of in-between moments that happen, you know, if, if the vibe is really good in a classroom, then there's a bunch of teaching that happens when I'm not even there, right? right. And so that wasn't, that was very hard for that to happen. It, I won't say that it didn't happen at all, but it took major effort on the part of the students to make any of that happen because the community felt fundamentally strained. Yeah. So that was difficult. And I think that after that first semester, I know a lot of us put, put new emphasis on the structure in the way we conduct an online course that would help build some of that community back up. I was teaching a business of art course. And one of the things that I encourage my students to do is to make a list of things that were harder to do now that we were in the pandemic. And they all talked about the in-person critique process. Yeah. And that it just didn't feel the same through the screen. And that there was something about being in the room with people, reading their faces. You know, we give each other a lot of nonverbal communication. That's a type of encouragement during critique. And so students in this class, they have to do a final project that involves them contacting and interacting with strangers, right? Mm. <laughs> because they have to be able to go out into the world and act as professionals. And a big part of this class is actually that they have to build their own communities. And it was really interesting because it's a regularly assigned project in the class, but the students all wanted to do it 
to really combat the isolation fatigue that they felt. And so they all built different models. What, like one was on Discord, one was a Zoom, one was um, like an Instagram Live. And so they were trying to do this and they were, I think for the most part, very successful because they engaged a number of people who they had never met before. One of your one of the things we've talked about a lot, just in our conversations personally, which I love, is that conversation is integral to your teaching and your art practice. And can you explain the importance of conversation in both? <laughs> I used to be a very shy person. I was once uh, absolutely an introvert. I find that hard to believe. I know, so does everybody else. But that was my, you know, I was afraid to talk to people. I was afraid that people would judge me. I was afraid that I'd come up short in some way. You know, I was scared of everything. I was scared of talking to boys. I was scared of talking to girls. I was scared of sports. I was scared of, I never raised my hand in class. I was not that person. Uh, and I had an opportunity when I went to college. I figured, oh, nobody knows me here. That wasn't true. There were like five kids from my high school who went to my college. But I figured if I pretend that I'm comfortable in these social spaces, people might think I'm cool or they might think I'm comfortable in these social spaces and they won't know. So it's a place that I go back to frequently uh, when I'm trying to figure things out. I want to have conversations. I want to have conversations where I'm going to learn something. I want to have conversations with strangers. And I still find that somewhat intimidating just to walk up to somebody on the street and initiate conversation. But in my mind, it feels like a very effective tool. Like if you ask runners why they run, nobody says they love running. Like, oh, I love, I never see them smiling when they're running, right? They do it because it's a really efficient way of getting what they need to get done, done. And I feel this way about having conversations with strangers. Every single one is scary but it feels really important. I have created almost like flexus style assignments for myself where like I box myself into a corner. I've got a deadline. I promised a gallery. I'm doing this project and I have to talk to strangers to get it done. Am I motivated by fear? Am I seeking out fear? Maybe. Self-flagellation? No, I mean, I'm Catholic, but not anymore. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, one of those. Reformed. The reformed. Drama. Yeah recovering Catholic. So I know, I mean, I think, I think fear is fascinating and, and fear can stop you or it can propel you. Mm. And as I age, I think I'm questioning the things that I'm afraid of. And I'm looking to see it's a different kind of FOMO, you know, is there something that I, that could be better in my life that I've been avoiding because I'm afraid of something. Uh, so these conversations are part of that. Um, for me, like combat martial arts was part of that. I couldn't think of anything scarier. So I did that and I somehow survived and I went to a competition and almost died, but didn't die. And then I thought like, okay, well, I've done, I've done that. I don't need to keep doing it. So you that. operate on the margin. You don't need to be in the center. You're always pushing. If something feels really easy, then I'll do it before I go to sleep at night, but I won't do it as my main practice because I feel like I don't know enough yet. I need to learn more. And mm -hmm. if I'm uncomfortable, then I must be learning, right? Yeah, sort of like So that. I'm trying to make friends with that discomfort. 
I think that's brilliant. Um, you know, and we were talking about conversations. Would this be a good time maybe to talk about your work with Food Story? Sure. Because that's a that's a that's a project that maybe <laughs> taps into this fear and conversation angle. It is. It is. Uh, Food Story is uh, it's a series of performance actions. And I have a, a tent, a special portable recording tent that I set up in public and municipal spaces. And when I set up the tent, I also bring food with me that I've made. And I make food and serve people meals in exchange for them telling me stories and letting me record their stories. After I record their stories, I will pick a small part of the story, an important part, right? something that feels like the crux of the story or the, the moment when something changed in the story. And I usually isolate a gesture, some kind of nonverbal communication that the person is making at that time. And I focus on animating just that. Animators know animation is a very labor-intensive process. And for this, even though I teach CG animation, for this project, almost everything I do is hand-drawn. Wow. Well, people are trusting me with their stories and I want to be the best possible listener that I can be really paying attention to the nonverbal communication afterward, after I've already heard the story to go back and watch that again and again and again feels like the most attention I could possibly give to honor the stories that people are telling me in this exchange. I mean, you could pay people for their time. I think important to do, but I wanted something that was a non-capitalist exchange. So I wanted to have something of value. I also wanted to mimic some things that were missing for me during the pandemic. I wanted to mimic sitting down to a meal, inviting somebody to your home, inviting somebody in and saying like, I will come sit at my table, tell me your story, and I will honor it to give it my full attention. Because I think if I can get people to trust me in this tiny little bit of time in some public space somewhere, then we can do things that government and economic structures can't do. And I think that's really important because it feels right now like all these other structures that we've relied upon for so long, maybe they don't work as well as we thought they did. And maybe they're not always going to be here. So that's a takeaway from the pandemic, perhaps. Maybe you're already thinking that way, but maybe this made it more. I am preparing for the apocalypse <laughs> by joyfully feeding people and listening to and animating their stories. And then the recorded stories end up in a podcast so that we have a repository of the full story. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the animations, I go back to the original site maybe six months later or a year later, and I project at night the animations at the location where they were first recorded so that the person's voice, it's always accessible online in this repository, but it can also be tied to a place and it can have an event, right? It can have a, a special action to really make people as powerful as I think we need to be to survive whatever's coming next. So, I mean, what you're describing is kind of two actions. I think that you're giving somebody an offering but you're also amplifying amplifying other people's voices. And that seems to be a consistent part of your practice. How do you bring that to your classroom? Students can't position themselves 
as artists in the contemporary art world until they feel that their voices are legitimate. And it's not a gallery space always that does that. Sometimes students have to build their own community. They have to ask people to listen to their voices and they have to be pretty persistent. But if they're willing to share, I think their experiences resonate with other people. This idea of like, building your own community, keeping up that momentum, and really advocating for yourself as an artist. These are the most important things that very young artists can do, or the most important things that we can do for them, right? Like, I'm not a gatekeeper, so I can't open doors for them. But any door that I've been through, I can hold open. That's beautiful. I think the arts community that is closest to where I live is the Newark arts community. And it's one that not having ever lived in Newark, I was really surprised at how quickly and easily and warmly the Newark arts community embraced me and really helped me in my practice. First started there years ago. Should we say years years ago? Years ago. Uh, you know, and this is these uh, this is primarily an art space that's created by artists for artists, and it's also an art space that's primarily created by people of color. And the the number one job is to amplify voices that have always been in some way reduced or prevented from being amplified. And so here's a community that knows how to do that and so to be part of that community is to be you have to be an active participant for me it was like a way of being a student even though I'm an educator it was really nice to be a student of the Newark art scene as well as part of it the friendships I've made you know it's still a major source of inspiration for me just you know I want to see what's happening and what's happening next and who's coming up and I, I have to go to Newark. Yeah. Like that's where everything's happening. And I love the fact that you're emphasizing community because um, I think a lot of young people or students have the notion that in our practice is an isolated one where you're in a studio by yourself and you're making. And a lot of um, students I work with or mentor have difficulty going to openings or promoting sure. themselves. Or, sure. As a former shy person, I understand this, but if a tree falls in your parents' basement and no one is there to rescue you, is anything really happening, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. you have to. So I push them really hard to get out of their comfort zone. I require it. Sometimes if you say like you're grading something, then you know it's going to get done. So one of the things I do in my animation classes is I require as part of the final exam students have to apply to festivals they have to apply to at least three film festivals and they hate it of course they do they're terrified and guess what like every single semester two or three people end up in film festivals of course they do now they know it's achievable well we have to remind young people there's a lot going on there's a lot of young people that have to be reminded that they do belong here That's a beautiful gift. I know you're really pushing them and they probably hate it at the time, but how (laughs) empowering is that? So you recently had work on view at the college um, in the gallery there, kind of turning the tables and getting critiqued by the students. So can you talk a little bit about the work on view and what kind of feedback did you get from the students that was maybe surprising or you weren't expecting? 
most of the students wanted to know how the sauce was made, right? Like what kind they, of things? They wanted to know, how are you finding the people to interview? What do you mean you're talking to strangers, right? The same fear that I have is mm-hmm. also scary to them. And then they wanted to know, is there more to this story? What else did you find out? Do these people that you're interviewing, because I put some things together thematically, do these people that you're interviewing know each other? And they didn't, you know, but uh, the questions that they had were really, um, and then, you know, somebody always wants to know why, why can't I just go record somebody's story and have it be art? And the answer is you can, (laughs) you probably should. If you're thinking about that, you should do it. I like, love it. I do not own stories. Do they see that your work is art or are they even questioning that? Like, how is that? Are they thinking about traditional media or are they already primed? Oh, we talk about what is art all the time. And we talk about it in almost every single class. It comes up and I say, I'm going to answer that question for you. And they're shocked. Like, how can you know what art is? Because I'm, I'm an artist. <laughs> that's the answer. Like, that's, why I get the, that's why I get the big bucks. Uh, <laughs> it's a social mirror, right? We're trying to understand ourselves. We're trying to move things forward, fix things. That's what art is doing. And so I tell them, like, well, there's being artistic. There's being creative. There's things that are appealing to you. And then there's capital A art. Capital A art does a job, right? It has, it has to be relevant has to speak to you, has to have some kind of cultural capital. And then of course, there's always the question about tying it to the marketplace because they've heard two tropes, right? They've heard, you know, I'm Picasso, I scribble on a napkin and it pays for my meal or starving artist. And the starving artist trope is, it's not a, it's not a nice one. It's not a helpful one. Just because in the United States, uh, contemporary culture or uh, is not valued as much as pop culture or commercial products like that doesn't mean that that's where how it is everywhere and we you know we have a lot of discussions about you know what is cultural capital why is something important who decides that it's relevant and i think you asked about social media before this is where social media can potentially be very democratizing Mm. for the art world because you can do things without a gatekeeper. You can get your work in front of people, you can have conversations, you can do the things that you need your work to do, even if it's not in a blue chip gallery. And I'm looking at you know certain publications that just are less relevant. Let yeah. me do this then. Yes. Hyperallergic. Yes, what about hyperallergic? I think they so do a tremendous job with social that's justice. The new publication that is the most important publication it is i i read it religiously it's in my inbox every Uh day and that's i get hundreds of emails i read that every day yeah and that's the publication that's doing the work yep it is it's doing the and this is a great transition because what hyperallergic does is a lot of social justice issues centered on the art world and you bring that to both your practice in the studio and to your classroom can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, what does that look like? What issues or how do you instill that in your students? Well, 
I start with things that I'm familiar with. I start with things that are affecting me and then I slowly creep outward from there, right? You start with who you are and what you know. I got a grant a number of years ago from the Meadowlands and one of the research facilities there. What's in the Meadowlands library? And it's a lot of legal documents that are filed by um, any developer that wants to build in the Meadowlands because it's a marsh, it's a super fun site. It has, you know, a lot before it was an environmental center. It yeah. was also a lot of other things. Garbage <laughs> stuff. Yes, for hundreds of years, not just in recent uh, history. So looking at, you know, what is there? What's, what's in this library? Why is having access to this library going to help me? I just started looking to see what was there. It wasn't officially protected information. It's actually officially all of it public information, but it felt like it was being guarded in some way. And so, you know, I think most artists, once you feel that little tug, then you're all in. Yeah. Like, all right, I'm going to go to this library every day and I'm going to get pollution information. I want to see what it says. And it was really interesting because one of the other things that was a highlight of being able to work at this facility is that they have a big GIS mapping system and these really large plotters so that you can make super accurate, very large maps. So I got the maps made, you know, I got the maps made, I got access to everything from the library that I wanted. And then the very last step was after the maps were made, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to play with the files a little bit digitally and maybe make some things. And I said, great, thank you so much for your help. Can I have the files? And that's when everything fell apart. Of course. <laughs> you just had the push. Yes. Well, you know, you want the stuff. You got to ask, right? The bear. <laughs> no, it's good to ask. It's good to ask. I went, to the, I went to the Metropolitan Museum and I asked for stuff and they gave it to me. We need more artists like you. Yeah. Just ask. It's okay. Just ask. So unfortunately, our time is running out. I'm going to ask you two more questions, two more quick questions, not as pithy as the last few. <laughs> so what would you like to do more of in the classroom that, or in your curricula that you're not able to do right now? Oh, I want to do more of, I want more time with the students. I mean, they're paying for four credits. I don't want to make them pay for more credits than that, but I just want more time with them. It feels like there's never enough time. Uh, and that's not the institution's fault. That's just life. Yeah. Right? But I do have I do have some students who will graduate and then they'll like come back and audit a class. Like me. Just to just to <laughs> absolutely. Like I never go really away. Good. No, it's well. Hey, it's kind of a nice thing to be able to do that, and that happens. I you know I'm actually thinking back to I got talking about this Meadowlands thing, but the question was really about equity and social justice and what's happening with my students. And related to pollution and the Meadowlands and Newark and the Newark art scene, I take my students to the Ironbound Community Corporation. This mm -hmm. is a really powerful group of people. It started as a group of women who babysat for each other in like a, it was like a babysitting cohort so that they could go to work. And they became a group that was willing to advocate for each other and then advocate for their neighborhoods. And then the, as the group got larger, they got more organized and they started really focusing on the thing that was hurting them the most, which was all the pollution in Newark. 
it should be the wealthiest city in the United States. Think about it, it's the largest shipping port on the East Coast, mm -hmm. right? And you have this monster airport right there. Like those things alone and all of the industry that's there, this city should be dripping, absolutely dripping with money. And there's a lot of corruption through zoning yes. that has prevented that from happening. And this is a very savvy group that's really interested in making the Iron Bound, which is called that because it's hemmed in on three sides by train tracks, this very industrial place that is also a residential neighborhood. I live in Bergen County. My waste is taken to Newark because it's not supposed to bother the residents of Bergen County, but why don't the residents of Newark have more power? And this group is a group that is doing that. They actually have a lot of power. They show up, they show up at zoning meetings and environmental justice is like, they're no, they do a lot of things that aren't environmental justice, but environmental justice is their number one. And it's a place where they're very successful. So I will bring students to Ironbound Community Corporation, we just go around from site to site and they talk about, the, okay, this is what we did here. This is how we got this park. You know, and they talk about how do they get things up to a certain standard. And this advocacy, like the things that this group, that this community group is doing, it should be modeled absolutely everywhere. But it's also a nice way of showing students you can be very powerful. We talk about a lot of things actually in class that have to do with art and public art, public space, and a lot of it comes back to zoning. And so um, I know which students have taken a class with me because they'll tell me if they ever went to a zoning meeting. <laughs> <laughs> they all the time. Like, you got to go, they used to join meetings, but you got to go to these zoning meetings. Now you're talking my language. I worked on the zoning board for a little while for, for Mawa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I also did the gates. Um, I was one of the monitors and I adore the whole social practice mm -hmm. that that Jean-Claude mm -hmm. in particular enacted on the way to get the permits for some of these large public art projects. Yes. Okay. We're technically out of time, but I'll ask you the last question. <laughs> um, what do you think teaching studio art will look like in 10 years? I hope there are a ton of students. I hope that non-artists will understand why they also will benefit from understanding a studio practice. I think to have a successful creative practice in your life, there isn't any kind of occupation or interest that that that, that wouldn't apply to. And I would like to see that valued a lot more even before college. I'd like to see that valued more in K through 12. You see some of the highest performing schools, the, the best school districts, which used, usually are like the ones with the fanciest houses or whatever. But if money can buy anything, what do the rich kids get? They get the arts. Yeah, that's what they get. And so if we can press on a federal level to make more of that accessible to more schools, K through 12, then a studio practice won't be a mystery. It will be something that everybody knows about and understands how to incorporate creative daily practice into their lives. Well, thank you. It's been so nice speaking to you. I really miss having in-person conversations and um, I hope we do more of these again, perhaps um, maybe not just for a podcast, but just for just we the sheer it. joy of it's conversation. Joy. It is joy. Come to the food story tent and tell me your story. I'll I would love you. to. Is that is that an official invite? It is. It I is. would love to participate. All right. I'll be at the Hoboken Historical Society May 20th. 
Don't come on down. I'll be there. Thank you so much, Ann Lepore. Mm -hmm. It's been a Thank pleasure. You, Jean.